Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday evening and every Saturday evening for the last three years to uh, provide you education, awareness, enlightenment, and entertainment on the uh, issues surrounding the aftermath of crime, uh, primarily. And this very evening is no different, but we uh, continue on our journey. I believe this is the uh, second week of perhaps seven seven weeks of a very special journey we have featuring um, uh, seasoned and talented and both new and upcoming authors of true crime and um, and, and fictional crime authors uh, sponsored by Wild Blue Press. And uh, tonight we're, we're very um, lucky to have John Farrick with us who is going to share um, the ins and outs of his second of his second book, um, which is called Dixie's Last Stand. But before we kind of get into the meat of the matter, let me say good evening uh, to Delilah Jones. Delilah, hi. It's always a pleasure to have my sidekick with me. What would you like to say as your opening monologue this evening? <laughs> I don't have a monologue. You know that. <laughs> I'm, well, just, I'm just happy to be here on a Saturday afternoon or evening and really excited about this guest and, and the book that he's written and um, so honored to be a part of, of Wild Blue Press and the and the series that we're doing with them. Um, they have a lot of very talented authors, and, and like you said, it, some of them are, are very seasoned true crime authors and and several upcoming authors, and uh and this is this has been an exciting series, so yeah, looking forward to getting into it with with John Farrick. Yes, 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 indeed. And um, you know, sometimes I, I might think I'm Johnny Carson, and you're my Edic man. That's why I said that. <laughs> so anyway, mm. um, we, uh, we we like to have a little levity here sometimes too. Um, and I had the distinct pleasure of having a detailed conversation with. John Farrick um, from Appleton, uh, Wisconsin, uh, this week. And um, I, I'd like to mention that this is his second book. His first book was called uh, Bloody Lies, which it has been described as a CSI um, scandal type uh, of, of crime um, in, the, in the heartland. Uh, maybe shades of Trini Capote, but perhaps we could mention that at the end if we have some time. Um, this evening, we're going to focus on his second book, Dixie's Last Stand. So without further ado, um, John Farrick, it, um, thank you so much for appearing on Shattered Life. It's such a pleasure to know you as a new friend and to have you as our guest. Oh, I'm honored to be on the show, uh, Donna. Thanks very much for this uh, for this opportunity to visit with your listeners. Oh, well, it's it's our pleasure, and um, we want to let people know that if they're not able to listen live right now, the show will always be available forever after on the ARNA archive, so they can tune in at any time. 
And um, Delilah, you think it's a good idea? Perhaps we should mention what our promotional opportunities are right here up front. Oh, sure. So that, I mean, Wild Blue Press so is um, asking listeners for a vote. Um, Ron Prencell has a new book coming out, and uh, Wild Blue Press would like the listening audience to vote on the cover. You'll have to give them. I don't have the web address in front of me it's, right now, Donna, so if you'll give that out. I, okay. Uh, go ahead. It, it's http uh, slash wildbluepress.com uh, forward slash obituary cover, like all one word, obituary cover, and they press on that link and they will go to three different covers is my understanding. Um, and it is a contest to vote. Uh, which one you prefer, and when you do that, you go to the Wild Blue Press um, uh, link, and um, once you do that and you vote, you register, and I believe you have the opportunity to, uh, with your registration, you may be able to um, get a free copy of Obituary. This is advanced because we haven't even featured Ron on our show yet. But in addition, and just as important, um, it's my understanding that tonight, as we did with Kevin Sullivan, we uh, for those live listeners, uh, we are featuring John Farrick's, um book uh, um, for free for people just during our live uh, broadcast. And the caveat is, and this is very important, Please, please, as as a courtesy, as a thank you to any of our authors in this series, if they are generous enough to give you a book for free, please go to Amazon or Goodreads.com um, and write a review for them. It's very important. It's the lifeblood. Um, it's so it, it's so important to get recommendations. That's how they sell books. That's how they become known, and it shows that the you know the true appreciation. So um, Donna, can I can I make sure, some correction, please? Um, what they will get when they register for voting for the cover for the book called The Obituary by Ron Frenzel, they'll receive a free copy of another book by Ron. It's called The Deadline. So that book is already out, and they'll get a free copy of that one if they vote for the cover. I just didn't want to get um, okay have that confusion out there. My apologies. My apologies. No problem. Uh, Thank you. Okay, so The Deadline, and then but we we also have a a copy of Dixie's Last Stand, of which we are going to discuss right now. Um. So, John, um, it was a very fascinating tale that we talked about, and I was able to, you know, review your book as well. Um, you know, let me um, let me just ask a question, and then maybe you can you can start with some of the background, and I have a couple other questions. Um, what is it? You know, I'm always curious with any author. What is it that made this account? And I don't like to say story because we know it's a true account. What is this that made it different? than any other intimate partner homicide because that is truly the what what happened here. There is something that, you know, made you want to tell this story over the thousands of others. What's what made this different? Well that's a good question. Uh 
Donna. And uh, and there's a few, there's probably a few different aspects of this case that really uh, intrigued me and, and it made me realize that, that I felt the story would be of uh, high importance to readers uh, around uh, around the country. Um, the one thing that really stands out in my mind about this case in particular is that mm-hmm. let's, readers that read this book, um, Dixie's Last Stand, will identify Dixie Shanahan as the victim um, Yet, in the eyes of the criminal justice system in the state of Iowa, she is viewed as the uh, criminal, the killer, you know, the perpetrator. Um, and her mm-hmm. husband, who was a was who was a terrible abuser, um, very abusive uh, toward her, um, he is viewed in in uh, officially, you know, in an autopsy reports as you know as the victim. He's the homicide victim, based on the you know, the facts of the, the crime here. So uh, it's, it's so from that standpoint, it's a very odd case because nobody that, uh, that I, that I had encountered as a journalist when I covered this case um, viewed Scott Shanahan with any type of sympathy. Um, and, uh, and, but the, the opposite was true with Dixie Shanahan. Many people um, from Iowa and around the country that learned about her case viewed her in a very, very sympathetic light um, based on all that she had endured during her rough and troubled life uh, and uh, being married to Scott Shanahan and the abuse that she had put up with and uh, and it had endured. Um, um, so th- so that's that's kind of what uh, you know, makes this case very unusual, I, I feel, as far as the domestic violence case. And I think we may have talked about this a little bit the other day, but oftentimes in some of these domestic violence cases around the country, um, um, it's it's the man, um, the husband, who ultimately turns the gun or, or kills his, uh, his his wife, the abuser. Mm-hmm ultimately carries 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 through um and uh, ends the life of his uh um victim um and uh and, and like i said from this case it's the opposite dixie shanahan had never um been she really didn't have any criminal history and really did not was was not prone to physical violence and yet um for for whatever reason ultimately she is going to um take a shotgun from her husband and use that against him um, and end his life. Um, right. The other aspect of the case, um, as, as, as you're aware, was the fact, the odd fact, that after this happens, um, Dixie basically um, closes the door, you know, where the shooting happens in the bedroom, and basically blocks that out of her life. And you know, and uh, and and and. And so you have a well, are you, situation. Well, um, John, are you saying metaphorically or physically so that people know uh, that he is in the bedroom, right? And Yes, the, yes. The shooting happened. Uh, she right. shoots him and kills him inside of their bedroom and okay. then um, leaves his body um, inside, of the, um, inside of the bed um, over, um, o- over a year, um, actually 14 months is the exact uh, um, Time frame, but uh, uh, let's say that again, uh, so because I think it's unbelievable. So he he is in bed and sleeping, and she shoots him in the back of the head and shuts the door and leaves him there for fourteen months in that room. Correct, and it probably and it certainly would have been longer than that had not the uh, 
local sheriff's office uh, um, started to uh, um, become aware of Scott Shanahan's disappearance just a few months earlier than that. And um, if uh, if the sheriff's office had ultimately not obtained a search warrant to search the property, um, including the house, um, not October around October 20th of 2003, you know, there's no telling, you know, when, you know, when that body might have been identified and, uh, you know, discovered inside of that, uh, inside of that bedroom. Yeah, can I ask a question, John? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Was, when you said, you know, she was, he, excuse me, his body was in there for 14 months. Did no one miss him? I mean, did no one file a missing persons report? His family, you know, other members of his family, was there no one that thought there was something funny going on here? Not until about um not until about the summer then of 2003. So it wasn't until uh I'm trying to remember if it was June or or July. I think it may have been July. But uh but it really wasn't until about a year um almost a full year after he had he, he had been dead that that somebody in that town had had finally taken the initiative and called the sheriff's office and said Scott Shanahan is missing and we think that that's unusual and out of character. The thing is he had a very very he he was an only child and and his parents um had had already died um in the 1990s. So so he really didn't have very many close family members at all um you know to look not not look after him but just you know they were in constant contact with him but um the word around town though Dixie was going around telling people that uh, that uh, he had run he had he had left her and uh you know run run away to uh um first she mentioned the neighboring town about 45 minutes away called Atlantic Iowa so so that was the story that was planted around town again a town of 350 people um where um, most people didn't really interact with Scott Shanahan very closely. So, uh, it, it, and again, he did not work at that. He had not worked for many years, so it wasn't like his employer was wondering where he was at. Uh, okay, um, I was wondering about that, about the employment aspect. And is it true that now the town, and, and this is so ironic, the town is called Defiance, right? Defiance, Iowa, correct. where they yes. were. I mean, that's just kind of. You know, when when it gets into a crime, defiance. Um, and, and there's like 400 people in this small town where they live. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was Something actually like even that? a little bit smaller than that. I think about okay. 350, but it's about the same okay. thing, though. Yeah, 350 to 400. Uh, very, very small town. And it was about 12 miles. Well, it's about 12 miles up the road from the county seat, which is Harlan, Iowa. And that's mm-hmm. important because Harland is where the sheriff's office is based, and the sheriff's office is in charge of patrolling the whole county. And the whole county mm-hmm. only has about 13,000 people. Um, this is a, a very agriculture-dominated um, uh, area of uh, of, uh, of Iowa. Um, but that's, again, that's another key point because there was no police department um, actually in Defiance, Iowa, so uh, that, uh, you know, again, by the time word reaches the Shelby County Sheriff's Office, they're 12 miles away. So they weren't exactly, you know, right in the backyard of Scott Shanahan and Dixie Shanahan. Um, it was a considerable drive just to just to get uh, to defiance. 
Right. What, why don't you go into a little bit about um, about Dixie's background and upbringing and how they met, cause the, the, so we can have a little insight into how the how these two got together. Yeah. Um, well, that's uh, unfortunately uh, um, Dixie was was um, came from a very rough, um, troubled uh, family situation uh, to begin with, uh, as uh, um, as an abuse victim herself of. Uh, uh, of molestation involving uh, um, one of her stepdads. And uh, the family had moved around um, several times over the years while she was a child, um, oftentimes just to kind of uh, stay under the radar of, uh, of from law enforcement. Um, she's going to, I think at age 15 or 16, she's going to wind up uh, um, dating this Scott Shanahan, who was about five or six years older than her. So I think she's about 15 or 16, and he would have been 21 or 22 at the time. And Dixie had worked it out that uh, that she could move in and live with Scott Shanahan and his parents, um, again, to try to escape, uh, um, you know, her, her own rough um, family life, uh, you know, that, that she had, Growing up, and and her mother was okay with that, and Scott's parents, um, his um, his mother, Beverly uh, Fazer, and uh, and uh, and uh, Scott's stepfather at that point were okay with that, and Dixie became very close with Scott Shanahan's mom, um, mm-hmm. and uh, those two bonded, and uh, and as Dixie uh, testified years later at the trial, she considered Scott's mom more like her. her more of her real, more more of a real mom to her than uh, than her own mother and stuff like that. So, uh, but uh, but yeah. So Dixie had moved in with uh, with uh, with Scott's family in the mid 1980s, and and uh, it was around 1995 or so, uh, about 10 years later, is when Dixie and Scott actually got married, and um, and uh, they would have um, two children. Um, and uh, well, actually, yeah, they had two children, and then uh, she was pregnant at the time that uh, that this uh, this homicide had happened as well um, from him. But um, let's see, I'm trying to think what else would be important to to go through. Uh, shortly after they got married, um, and there were signs of domestic abuse already while they had dated, but more at that point in time, it was yelling and screaming, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and him him belittling her at times, you know, throwing stuff at her. Um, but it really um, increased incredibly um, after after they had uh, gotten married, and uh, and um, well, was, really was there a precipitating event uh, where because she got pregnant, um, she couldn't help with the expenses and whatnot, and that enraged him that she couldn't go to work. I mean, was that one factor? I know that. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I know that that comes up, uh, Donna, but I can't remember which child or if that was with all the children or not. But yeah, Doc, she had worked for several years and uh, was a very good uh, worker uh, by all accounts. Uh, she mo- mostly worked at uh, at some of the nursing homes throughout the uh, area and region, and uh, and had a lot of as friends. As a CNA. And, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she was a very dependable employee. So, um, but um, but it was during that period of time too, where a lot of the bruises happened, where Scott would 
would beat her up at home. And uh, she tried her best to try to cover those up. Uh, she would wear long pants and, and long shirts and um, long sleeve shirts. And a lot of her friends at work were, were worried for her and, uh, you know, really trying to help her in the situation and, uh, you know, and encourage her to look at other options, including uh, leaving Scott. And, uh, you know, there was a couple different periods of time where she had left for a short period of time and went down to Texas, which is ultimately where her her other siblings, many of her other siblings, had uh, had moved to Texas. And uh, so there was there were these different situations where she would leave Iowa for a little while, go to Texas briefly, and then return to Scott. Um, the one thing about Scott was that yeah, once she would leave, he would kind of become Mr. Lovey Dovey and uh, and. Um, very charming um, and controlling. Very char- yeah, very charming, and uh, you know, and promised to change his ways, and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, become a good husband, and uh, and he would talk about going to counseling, and you know, and take his batterers classes that uh, that he was uh, you know ordered or mandated by the court system. Um, um, right. But, uh, Lila, but it, how often have you heard that one? Oh, quite quite a bit, and I I think, you know, John is explaining this type of an escalation that's kind of normal in these sort of situations, and also the fact that Dixie was abused throughout her whole life, so, you know, this was kind of her normal, so to speak, and even mm-hmm. though it's horrific to hear, she really, it's to, this is what I got out of reading the book, she really didn't realize at that particular point that this was not normal. And then as you grow up, you you find that other people have relationships that are healthier and you kind of compare what you're going through with somebody who's going through a healthy relationship and you find out this is not normal. This is and, not normal. Um, right. But and, and as it seems to me that as his abuse escalated, her knowledge of of what was going wrong in her life was escalating as well. Does yes. that ring true, John? Yeah. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. And the, and the one thing too, uh, I mean, I could go into a little bit because it's important context for listeners. But there was ultimately um, three separate situations um, where where Scott was arrested, hauled away in handcuffs for domestic violence uh, um, against Dixie. Um, the first two situations. Uh, um, before, the first two situations, even after he had been arrested, um, she would she would later contact either the, the prosecutor or law enforcement, and and really try to encourage them to dismiss the charges, you know, and not move ahead with the prosecution. Now, um, that didn't happen, and uh, they didn't back down. And, and but in both of those situations, Scott pleaded guilty to the crimes, uh, um, since they were first offense crimes, and, and I can't remember what the the level of, of uh, of detail was, but they were again, mis- yeah, they were mis- well, they were misdemeanor crimes. So, uh, but nonetheless, they went on his record, and he could have faced, you know, some significant jail time on both of those situations. But, but in, I think one time he got two days for the first one, and then four okay. days for the second one. But again, mm-hmm. in both of those cases, though, Dixie wrote the court. She wrote a letter to the judge, and uh, you know, and. Uh, um, and encouraged him not to um, 
um, go, you know, go down hard on her husband. She, she, in fact, I think in one of the letters, as I pointed out in the book, um, she, she, she claimed that she had exaggerated some of the uh, allegations against him, um, which I don't think she did. Actually, I, I think that uh, I mean that what happened did happen, um, but nonetheless, she was pleading with the judge to let him back, you know, back back out so he could be, you know, be in the family and that he could attend his um, domestic violence, his batterers classes, and uh, and then so she was trying, she was you know pleading with the judge, you know, to go easy on him, and oh, in, in John, at least two cases. Do you think that the judge has how much discretion do they have with that situation? And can they tell if the person is under duress and and sort of um, play acting this? I mean, what what was maybe going through the judge's mind at that point? Were they really following the letter of the law or what in that situation? If that, that's that's a fair question, it's a good question, and and I can't remember which judge. They had a lot of rotating judges in. In, in, in Iowa, where, where especially in the smaller towns, you would have somewhere between four and six different judges that are rotating around on a given month and stuff like that. So I can't remember okay, exactly which judge. Right, right. But here's the thing, though, is that I, I remember even after this book came out, somebody had pointed out to me that oftentimes in the small rural communities, it's very unusual for just a local resident to get thrown in jail. Um, for you know, for uh, you know, unless the crime is murder. So I mean, the the point being is that is that oftentimes the judges were lenient and would go easy on people that were locals and stuff like that. And I think at that point in time, you're talking the mid to late 1990s. Um, I'm not sure the court system was taking domestic violence as seriously as they do now. Um, uh-huh. um, yeah, obviously, just like with the NFL, with Ray Rice from uh, just a few months ago and stuff like that, with his situation. So, uh, so, so, yeah. so, in, in hindsight, um, the judge probably could have and should have sent Scott Shanahan a more serious message that first time around, and given him at least six months in jail, or you know, or up to a year, whatever it was. But, uh, you know, but. Uh, but again, that didn't happen. That you know, the judge uh, suspended the sentence, uh, you know, and uh, for the most part, and uh, and um, you know, they just put, put on their probation. very way of domestic violence more, right? What you know, to me, that sort of the the crux of the matter, where where things may have started to turn around, was was their their ability to gain entry into that home, right? And um, how did how did the um, how did the law enforcement uh, be able? Can you explain how they're able to obtain probable cause to, or a, a warrant to gain entry into that home? And what was it like, you know, from their standpoint in the discovery? Now, I just want to be sure we're talking about the time that uh, that Scott was arrested, or actually the time they found the body at the house. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of I skipped forward to where they actually we're wanting to find out, you know, where he was and it was his yes, body. Yes. Okay, that's fine. That's fine because there was the, yeah, the two situations, the, the one actually where they actually did have to um, go into the house, uh, but that was, uh, that was, uh, that was the third time that he was arrested. But, uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, the, the search warrant situation was, uh, they had spent, again, you're talking uh, about three months, September, August, July. They had spent, uh, you know, about three months just really digging in and doing old-fashioned police detective work, um, you know, trying to look through public records, uh, running um, Scott Shanahan's name 
through driver's license databases, through um, missing persons databases, you know, as far as, uh, you know, people around the country that have turned up dead somewhere else. Um, they had run his name through employment and unemployment, um, you know, records through Iowa and also the federal government. And nothing mm-hmm. had come up at all over several years uh, for, for him collecting unemployment or, um, or, um, or, 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 or drawing income from a job. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, there was another, there was another key one as well that they had run, um, you know, where they, uh, um, well, yeah, again, in, in the bank records. Yeah. So there was no activity, you know, um, on his uh, bank account as far as that he had, he had gone to the bank uh, to withdraw any money or run a, you know, use his credit card, anything like that. So, uh, so they had exhausted um, sure, every conceivable thing, option they could think of to find him. And they had done several interviews by this point in time, probably between three and six uh, uh-huh. separate occasions with Dixie Shanahan herself. There had been at least two interviews in the driveway of her house. Um, and again, those situations made the sheriff's office suspicious because, you know, she she was um, very reluctant to let them in the house. Um um, again, they pulled up. She story? went outside. Well, well, her well, her story was 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 always the same that he had run off, um, and and then but the different parts of the story deviated and changed, you know, over time. Um, the first one was that he had run off and and left for Atlantic, Iowa, um, but then she claimed that he had called her um, about February or so, right before she was going to have that third child. And she claimed that he had wanted to be in the delivery room when the baby was born, and that she told him no way. And then, and then she claimed that that he said, "You're going to be hearing from my lawyer," and that was it. You know, so she was she was telling telling him that story. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, like I said, and then then it would change too. Eventually, it became that 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 he had run off with another woman. Um, again, a woman, Dixie didn't know or uh, but just she just claimed that he had run off with a woman and uh and that they had stopped by the house once or at least once before to pick up some of his clothing and some of his favorite music cds so uh um there was there was a handful of these different stories and then she would go around town and tell some people different stories about where he may have gone but she was also selling off and this is key this is key for the listeners. But in the meanwhile, she was selling off all of his, his, his basically his, I don't want to say junk cars, but uh, but he would refurbish cars. Um, he didn't do this for a job. This is basically what he did all day, though, was he just... Restoration he just of cars? Restor- yeah, restoration of cars. You know, he would cut them up and, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, like to work on antiques and, uh, and classic cars uh, just as a hobby. And she mm-hmm. and he also had some farm tractors, too. And she was going around putting advertisements in newspapers, selling off those cars one by one, and uh, and she did the same with the farm tractors. Uh, and, well, that wasn't uh, too smart, was it? Well, that's well. The thing is, too, this is what stuck with 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 one of the the local farmers that that acquired one of the the, the farm tractors. Uh, um, she t- she told the, the fellow since he had known her in Scott or her and Scott pretty well, he was a little reluctant to take, you know, one of the tractors off her hands, especially for free. And, uh, and oh. he told her, he's like, he's like, how about I'll just keep it at my, uh, you know, on my property, I'll put it right outside. That way when Scott does return to town, you know, um, and, you know, comes back to your house, you know, he could have it back. 
And mm-hmm. she just turned and looked at him and just said, he's not coming back. And it was just a very matter-of-fact statement, and that man would eventually testify to that, you know, during the murder trial. Oh. You know, that there was those kinds of hints going around town that, you know, Dixie wasn't worried, you know. Uh, everybody else was scratching their head around town by this point in time, wondering where Scott's at. You know, she's just going around town, you know, selling off his possessions and about the only thing that he cared about, uh, you know, and then just, you know, telling people he's not coming back. Um, yeah, yeah, his truck is still sitting in the driveway this whole period of time. Mm-hmm. Did she ever try to um, think, oh, well, I'll, I'll make a run for it, I'll take the kids and leave and go somewhere else? I know I think you said she had a, 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 a boyfriend afterwards, right? Correct. Um I mean, she had, well, she had done that on on, on a handful of occasions uh, right. prior to the prior to the homicide. But uh, but after Scott was dead, um, not to my knowledge, I'm not aware that she had uh, had ever contemplated or, uh, or 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 made any attempt to leave uh, um, Iowa at that point in time. Uh, it, it was um, that Memorial Day uh, weekend of 2003. Which again, mm-hmm. you're coming up on uh, almost eight or nine months after the homicide had happened, but it was about eight or nine months after the fact. Then is when she she met this uh, um, new fellow who was a few years older than her, but a pretty um, upstanding and decent uh, man, and uh, the exact opposite of Scott Shanahan. And uh, so they those two hit it off uh, um, you know, from the get go, and uh, and they dated uh, um, well. They eventually got married, but uh, but he would stay at the house and uh, pretty much every weekend. Um, now this is during the time when when he was when he had he was killed and he was up in the in the bedroom and and the boyfriend was visiting. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and he would later testify because that obviously was a that that befuddled the cops up. Uh, I can't imagine. It, well, and it also, and 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 that also kind of helped deepen the suspicion too around town and in the sheriff's office's mind before they had actually found the body and gone into the house with their search warrant, because again, they're thinking Scott Shanahan would not be the kind of guy that would tolerate, you know, his wife, you know, having a, a male guest staying at that at his house, um, you know, for a period mm-hmm. of several months. Um, he would have, been, you know, been the kind of guy that would have clearly, uh, you know, put, you know, put a shotgun blast through through this new boyfriend's skull if he was around and could do something about it. So those kinds of factors, you know, where Dixie's got a new boyfriend, very and, fishy, uh, yeah, yeah, and there's no yeah. divorce, you know, no attempt at a divorce, uh, and uh, and again, this was Scott's house that he had inherited from his mom and dad. Um, you know, those kinds of things weren't, uh, again. Um, adding up either for law enforcement for the sheriff's office as well. That, yeah, that's true. I, you know, before we get into, like, some of the the, the trial aspects or whatever, I, I'm wondering, this is a town of 350 or whatnot. Could the law enforcement possibly think that they would, that they would get, you know, a fair jury trial? Was there ever uh, to say, oh, we have to get a change of venue here? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember... Uh, um, how that went, and 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 I had covered the the jury selection too. Um, it was um, well, you know, it's usually the other way around. Um, it's it's in the defendant usually is the one that has the opportunity to petition <laughs> right. 
for it. So, so that wasn't happening. They wanted to have this case tried. Um, Dixie Shanahan and her public defenders, who were re- really good public defenders, I may add, um, Greg Stensland and Chuck uh, Chuck Fagan, they're both judges now. But uh, but no, they wanted to take they wanted her case to be tried in front of a local jury. So uh, so this was even for though the case for reasons for sympathy reasons, yeah. Yes, and, and Dixie you know, thought that, yeah, because because most people identified, yeah, people identified with her as the victim, and Scott Shanahan was not well regarded at all, you know, by those who knew him and uh, or those that were following the story. So, uh, so I mean, basically, the jury was the people would have been asked questions along the lines of, you know, are you aware of the case? Did you read about it in the paper or seen it on TV? You know, but ultimately, can you render a fair um, you know, an honest verdict and be impartial and put put your whatever you've read or seen about the case aside. The other thing too is that again, this was not a case who done it though, Donna. Uh, Dixie mm-hmm. had Dixie Dixie took the put the, her defense was going to be only based on you know, justification. So it wasn't a case of you know whether or not she did it. She admitted she did it, but uh, but her she and her attorney took the position that, that the homicide was justified. So that's the other thing, too, to think about, you know, when you're picking the jury. So, um, she, I mean, she she admitted that she she was the shooter. She did it. Um, and but she was she, battered she for years, and, and that was Correct. That was you know, before, we get, too, before we get too far into the trial, because I think that's a fascinating story in itself, we have a caller, which is great, from Area Code 303, and uh, I'd like to bring them on now. Caller, um, do you have a question or a comment? Hi. Hello. Are you there? You're on the air. Area code 303. Okay. I hope you're just no? listening. Oh, okay. Carry on. Well, <laughs> we can carry on. Decide. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, I had a question, you know, going Go into the trial and and you spoke a lot about the jury and how they were selected and so forth. And going through the trial, what do you think, what piece of evidence or what was it that turned them? Oh, I think mm-hmm. that it was it was the um the the photos that that showed the body in the bed, Scott Shanahan's body in the bed, um pretty much in the exact same position that he would have been found or that he would have been in 14 months earlier when he had been shot and, and, and you know, and killed. Um, those photos um, were very uh, um, um, telling, and uh, and the prosecution, um, you know, did an outstanding job as far as just, you know, just pointing out that this is a man, the physical evidence in the autopsy shows that the uh, that uh, that this is a man who was shot in his bed. The shotgun blast that he suffered was through the back of his head. Not so was he on his, his stomach, laying on his stomach, and his head like that, or she just laying on his? He was laying on his side, um, and he was okay. uh, he had uh, he was laying on his side, um, and uh, I, th- I think his head was on a pillow. But then he also and I. Apparently this may have been the way he normally slept, but he uh, he also had a pillow between his his knees and his legs. Um, mm-hmm. And the prosecutor would say that people sleep. There's a lot of people that sleep like that. Um, and then he also had a television remote at the bottom of his foot too, in the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, um, again, the the photos showed um, 
when the body was actually found in the bedroom, um, the body was pulled, the covers were pulled up over his head. Um, all the blankets and covers were pulled up over his head. And um, when the um, when the CSI uh, from the st- team, the two CSIs from Iowa um, came in there, yeah, I mean, they found the room and the bed pretty much the way that it, that it probably looked at the time that he was fatally shot. Um, um, what type of evidence? What type of evidence was presented that um, whether you know Dixie, like so many, like so many other cases similar to this, a, a, a woman or a man gets to a point where they just snap, and, or the circumstances arise that you know you're just not going to take it anymore, and then seizing my know, opportunity, it seems like right? The, yeah. It seems well. It seems like the only way out of the situation is is murder of the other uh, the other partner. But was there evidence supporting that she so called snapped, or was was this a premeditated act on Dixie's part? And I say that because it's not very often if you find someone who's going to leave the body in the room for fourteen months. That's right. Correct. Yeah, and the, the evidence was was pretty clear. That uh, that it was a premeditated um, act. Um, whether the murder happened or the shooting happened during the daytime or nighttime, the testimony was that it happened during the daytime. Um, either way, it was also Scott used to normally sleep until noon, at, you know, according to testimony anyway. So, uh, but uh, but either way, the um, the, sh- the shooting appeared that uh, he was shot when he was sleeping. The other thing that really uh, um, doomed Dixie um was when the um was when the shotgun uh was was ultimately retrieved that was used in the in the in the in Scott's uh death. And this was a sixteen gauge um shotgun. But the two um the round that was used to uh to, to fatally shoot him was a twenty gauge round. And there was also a 12-gauge round that was jammed into to the gun, which would not have fired. And uh, and and they basically had to take this gun apart to even dislodge this uh, 12-gauge piece of ammunition. But the point being is that Scott Shanahan um, knew guns inside and out, and and to think that he would have loaded his own weapon with with incorrect ammunition. Um, you know, is, is lunacy. So, uh, so the oh, prosecution yeah, was that's able very to argue, telling. right? So, law enforcement prosecution was able to argue, and Dixie did, admitted this on the stand too, that she didn't know guns at all. And uh, and then the prosecutor, I think, even said at that point in time, is like, that's exactly my point, ma'am. Um, you know, you wouldn't have, uh, you know, you were not familiar with with, with you know with, you know with, with with handling you know these weapons. Mm-hmm. So, um, but your husband would have been. So uh, um, a normal person that used this weapon would have put a 16-gauge round in there. Um, the 20-gauge was able to fire, but uh, mm-hmm. the 12-gauge um, would not have been normally and stuff like that. But, again, it was one round that was fired, so uh, mm-hmm. the second one was obsolete. But, again, inc- totally incorrect ammunition was, was found in the weapon. Um, and, um, you know, and then yeah. the other thing, too, was, yes, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just wondering, on the defensive side, was there, a, you know, in trying to meet out whether, like, with what Delilah just referred to, oh, you know, they, they've they've had enough and this is the only way out, did they do a psychiatric evaluation and did, did the defense try to use that? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't believe they did. I don't remember. Uh, 
I don't remember that uh, that that coming up at all in the in the case. No. Uh, so um, it was. The- um, you know, the one thing I felt that uh, this this really worked against her, and and I felt that if the if the defense would have done a little bit more strategy and homework ahead of time, they brought in um, this. Um, um, this uh, she was the head of the of, of Iowa's. Uh, uh, domestic violence coalition, and she had testified in, 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 in at least a hundred other crimes and cases around the state of Iowa. So she was a prof- you know a very as a very knowledgeable expert about uh, domestic violence. Um, but the but but the thing was is that they had only contacted her about a month before the trial, and she had a she was forced to admit on the stand during the cross examination that she had never you know, even met Dixie to kind of for a sit down or a consultation, you know, and she had to basically admit to the jury that she was just talking in generalities. So I felt, you know, that, that, you know, in hindsight, it probably would have helped Dixie's defense a little bit more if, like you just mentioned, they would have had this, this, this witness sit down and meet with her, spend six to eight, eight hours or a full day. Examinations. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it just, that, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense. And, you know, when, when you're talking about that too, with a, with a town of 350 and you say, I know we talked about that there were resources, but what resources were there um, in her immediate, you know, if the, if the sheriff's office, was 12 miles away, how far would she have had to have gone to, to, to glean any resources, John? Pretty much 12 miles away. Harlan was the county seat. It's a town of about uh, 6,000, 5,000 to 6,000 people. And there was a hospital there, and uh, and uh, and that's where uh, um, some of the domestic violence, uh, like her husband had gone there, I believe, uh, for his batterer's uh, program uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it would... It, that, that, that is a good point. Uh, that, I mean, it wasn't like she could just walk right down the street to City Hall and, uh, you know, and, and, and have uh, um, you know, people that could uh, sit down and, and consult with her. Um, she right. had friends in that town, but, uh, but I mean, your, your, your point is, is, is well taken. Uh, that, again, when you're in a town of 350 people, um, you know, there really wasn't much in Defiance, Iowa, except for the volunteer fire station, um, the town restaurant slash bar, you know, and a convenience <laughs> store uh, yeah. outside the, you know, on the highway there on Highway 59 and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the village, the city hall uh, building and stuff like that. So, Yeah. Well, you know, that what we sort of maybe the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet, um, and just to let you know, give you a time frame, we've got about 12 minutes remaining of our show. Um, is the whole controversy of whether or not, you know, this should have been classified as, you know, self-defense justified versus, you know, um, no, you know, this guy, this guy was a batterer from the, from the get-go and um, he got what he deserved and, and all of that. And I, I was just amazed at the end of the book with regard to the comments that she made though. But so can we address the, the controversy there, the you know both sides of the issue. Are there any stats that people who think intimate partner violence should be um, self-defense and, and the people should be acquitted versus those that say no that that shouldn't be? I mean, what what was the consensus in Iowa and have things changed? I, I well, I think things have not changed, but but there was strong 
there was strong um, momentum in her favor prior prior to the trial. But I think that when um, the jury came back with its verdict and it was explained that the shooting happened while he was asleep versus in the middle of a struggle or a heated argument, as she testified to, um, and the, the bottom line is that that she. Uh, probably testified or perjured herself or just gave a totally incorrect and uh, uh, false statement, which would have damaged her credibility. I think that if the, if it would have if it would have been proven that that she shot Scott Shanahan during a struggle, during a fight, or during an argument, there would be a lot more sympathy, uh, um, you know, in 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 her corner um, after the case and into this day. Um, nonetheless, there are still a lot of people that feel that she should have never been convicted just based on the fact that she had suffered and endured years of abuse. Um, but the law but enforcement people... hiding the body for 14 months, what was well, in her mind? True. I can't get my mind around that. I don't care right. what she did. To do that yeah. shows, right. um, you know, premeditation and... You know, she knew she was guilty. She hit somebody. That's a pattern of conduct that would indicate guilt, wouldn't it? Yes, and the other thing, too, is she was interviewed, yeah, once or twice that same day, hours before they went in and searched the house. Um, They had given her one last opportunity, the sheriff and uh, one of the DCI agents from Iowa, and uh, they sat down with her, and she, again, still clung to the, you know, stuck with the story that Scott had run off, Um and, um, you know, and it was that day that the sheriff dropped her off at a friend's farmhouse uh, and, you know, and uh, she got wind that they were going to search the house. And she told, you know, she told the the, the farmers at that house they're going to find Scott. So uh, it was just one of those things. And the sheriff to this day um, in that department kind of looked back on the case and, and they feel that if Dixie would have just come forward um you know, within days of this happening, you know, no matter how it went down factually, as far as how the shooting went down, even if she shot him in the middle of the night while he was asleep, but if she would have come forward from the get-go and, uh, you know, and, and alerted them to what happened instead of putting together this, this web of lies and, and lying about him leaving and then hiding the body, that she would certainly be out of jail or prison, you know, by this point in time, um, but again, that didn't happen, and uh, you know, and uh, she's still in prison to this day. So how long? And before I was just going to say, before we run out of time, do you know what the aftermath of all of this has been for their children? What you know, yeah, here these children not only lost a father, they lost a mother, so they've lost both parents. And what resources have they been able to tap into? And what? How has this? whole thing affected them do you know i'm i'm not very sure on that to be honest with you just because the the children eventually were sent um the state of iowa revoked um dixie's parental rights after she was convicted of murder and her her the three young children then were sent to the state of uh texas then to live with one of her sisters down there and Uh and I'm pretty sure. Well, I I know factually that they're still there to this day, you know, living with uh with with Dixie's uh, um, um, you know, family members, relatives down in the state of Texas and stuff wow. like that. So so one would hope, obviously, that uh, that they're you know that they've been able to you know receive the uh, um you know care and love and uh, you know and attention and 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 any help too, you know, um for having you know had to you know unintentionally you know but you know 
you know, deal with this unfortunate set of circumstances where where their father was 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 killed, he died, and then their mother is taken away from them, right? Um, you know, and sent to prison herself for for who knows how long. But but yeah, the kids have been ripped away from mom, and uh, and I know that's uh, you know terrible on both ends because Dixie loved her children very much. And uh, I have no doubt that Dixie's kids loved her very much. So that's one of the unfortunate, uh, very unfortunate. Uh, There's a lot of aftermath there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about the um, what laws were in place at the time um, with regard to Iowa and what we talked about with with the with the governor, what the what the governor did. Oh, okay. Or, well. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, uh, and this was really, uh, um, I, w- I was surprised as a journalist to, to, to learn about this after the verdict, uh, but, but, but when the jury came back and decided uh, on second-degree murder conviction, not first-degree, um, but they could have also gone a different direction, too, and get, found manslaughter or something, but second-degree murder conviction for Dixie Shanahan in Iowa carried a mandatory, uh, just a flat 50-year prison sentence. And the judge was very uh, fifty years, just a flat fifty-year prison sentence. Um, and she and that was in her thirties, is that right? She was mid thirty-six or thirty-seven at that point in time. Um, okay. Yeah, I think almost thirty-seven. And uh, and so the judge, the, the sentencing was a joke. I mean, um, everybody agreed it was just a waste of everybody's time. You know, the prosecutor didn't need to come there make any arguments. Uh, the defense didn't need to make any arguments, and Dixie didn't need to make any arguments because it wouldn't matter. But at least the judge, you know, uh, Judge uh, Charles Smith, uh, who was a really good guy, um, very good judge, but uh, he used the, the sentencing as an opportunity to, to make his own political statement, and and he really uh, rebuked the state of Iowa as far as for the uh, for the sentencing laws, how they hamstrung him as a judge in this case. Uh, he did not disagree. I point out. He did not disagree with the jury's verdict, but he felt that he should have had you know, a wide range of latitude to craft an appropriate sentence for Dixie. He did not feel and, and believe that a 50-year sentence was just for her, given the years of abuse that she had endured uh, um, previous to this. Um, so uh, he, 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 he mentioned that he hoped the state of Iowa and the politicians would, would look at Dixie's case and consider changing the state's uh, mandatory minimum prison sentence laws that they had in place uh, in 2004. Um, but uh, unfortunately, to this day, things are still the same in Iowa. And, uh, you know, and a 50-second-degree uh, murder conviction is a straight uh, 50-year term, whereas in Nebraska, where I had also covered uh, the area as well, a second-degree murder conviction could carry um, a, a penalty of 20 years to life, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know, and, and you could get half time for good behavior. So, uh, so there was a wide range of penalties for the same crime, and just uh, just um, 60 miles to the, to the west. But because this crime happened in Defiance, Iowa, it was a flat 50-year prison sentence for. Dick. Why do you think um, that is? 11 years later, they still haven't. I mean, crimes are still being committed, and this this sounds like a landmark case, just like yeah, in Connecticut, Thurman. And I interviewed Judge Smith uh, a couple months ago when I was finishing the book um, uh-huh. because it was interesting to get his take, you know, 10 or 11 years after the fact. And, yeah. and he said that he's just not surprised that politicians, he said no no politician wants to be known as being weak, you know, on the, in criminal justice or, or on criminals. So he said it's kind of a, an unfortunate that, that you need politicians to change the laws 
you know, in order to give the judges back the power and discretion that that that, that they feel they deserve. But the politicians would be are, are fearful of being portrayed, you know, by a future opponent or or you know or by the other political party, you know, as being weak and soft on crime. So it's kind of one of those, you know perpetual um it's going to be a hard one to change at this point in time moving forward even though most people that would follow this case and read about this case would realize and agree you know if they don't agree on anything about the case i think they would agree that this this the flat 50-year prison sentence you know it was just incredibly uh you know unfortunate uh for someone like dixie shanahan and it could repeat itself in the future for somebody else uh sad sad to say so and and what what was what was the uh postscript on this in terms of her comment about um you know if she had if she could uh you know change the past what what was her comment well she had uh, she and her lawyer at, at the time of the sentencing or within a couple of days of the sentence uh, where she got the 50 year sentence and was in the process of moving from the county jail to the state of Iowa's prison system, they held a press conference in the in the jail at the sheriff's office before she left uh, and went to uh, went to Mitchellville, Iowa. And during this press conference, she was asked by a bunch of us reporters. There was probably about ten or fifteen of us. It was a you know well packed uh, press conference. But she just made a she she was very defiant, um, you know, in, in in what she had done, you know, and uh, and was very uh, um, adamant that if she had a chance to do it again. You know that she still felt that she was justified to, you know, to shoot and kill Scott. You know, she really didn't well, have she any. She had regret. no remorse, in other words, right? No remorse, no remorse or regret. So, so, I, <sighs> so I think in the years afterwards, that has really hurt her. You know, in yeah. the in the eyes of the Iowa Pro Board. Uh, whereas I think if she would really undergo a trans, true transformation and not, you know, just put something down on paper and say, you know, yeah, I've I've changed my mind, you know, and you know, but if she really was sincere and honest about it, I think the parole board, you know, would give her very strong consideration to let her out of prison from this point forward, um, assuming she also has good behavior in the prison system as well. But but I think that has worked against her up till now. Well, it sounds like it. And, you know, this is is a a very fascinating book with with a lot of twists and turns. And um, we want to encourage all of our listeners to go. And, um, well, those of them that are listening now, perhaps they – We'll have a free copy. Other people on the archives can go and purchase it through Wild Blue Press, through Goodreads, through um, through Amazon. And please uh, don't forget to go to wildbluepress.com slash obituary, obituary cover to look at Ron Franchel's three um, covers and vote on that so that you can get his previous book, which was called, can you remind me again? I'm sorry. The Deadline. Uh, Deadline, deadline. Okay, very good. John, um, thank you so very much for the opportunity here. I wish we wish you well in your next books, in your career, and we're going to keep in touch here. And um, so we'll we'll sign off for this evening, and please stay tuned because we're going to have another fine author next week from Wild Blue Press. So thank you very much. Thank you, Delilah, and everyone have a good Saturday evening.